Hi, I'm Marika and welcome to Money Chill Out. On this podcast, I want to dive into the world of the often unspoken topic of money. Effective personal finance management can be a great liberator, but also a huge stress factor in our lives. After a 10-year career on trading floors in London, I want to help demystify the intimidating world of finance and have an open, honest and frank conversation. By opening the discussion, I wish you identify yourself, learn, be inspired and get empowered. Every other week, I'll be joined by guests for conversation on money, mindset, investment habits and any best practices they abide by. So join me on this journey as we unpick the complexities of finance and get more comfortable talking about our money. My guest today is Tessa. We rarely meet, but when we do, whether in France or in New York, it's always a great pleasure. What I love with her is that she is strong, independent and free, a bit unconventional, and as such, very inspiring. Tessa loves pushing herself and always eye for the top. Having a good life in London, working in marketing and merchandising wasn't enough for her, and being ambitious and smart, she decided to apply to Harvard. She got an offer, had to find ways to get funded, succeeded there, moved to Boston, and after graduation, settled in New York City. So in terms of financial planning, Tessa has been impressive. Let's see how she does it and check if it's the same with the planned baby's arrival. So hi, Tessa, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Marika? Yeah, great, great. Super happy to have you on this podcast. So thank you so much for accepting. Very excited to speak about your successes and especially how you achieve things. So let's go because there's lots to say. <laughs> <laughs> It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yeah. So before entering into today's subject, I basically would like to know more about your relationship with money. So how at his are you and have you been raised with it? Yeah, such an interesting topic. And I've actually reflected quite a bit on this, given that I moved from Europe to the US. I think I've been raised in a fairly traditional French way in the sense that, you know, we never spoke about money at the table, at the family dinner table. Money was really not a topic of conversation. And I think that's good in certain aspects, but it's also unfortunate in others in the sense that when I, I don't think I actually started to know what the value of things was until probably college. And, you know, that's really when I started trying to get a job on the side and really understood, you know, what it means to make your own money. So I would say the, the traditional concept of money in France, or at least the way I was educated was that money is vulgar. It's vulgar to speak about it. It's dirty. So, you know, you should always wash your hands after touching money, which I think is a good hygiene practice, but I think it's also quite conceptual. And I love your podcast because I think the objective is really to empower women on this topic. And I think it's essential. Mm -hmm. And being protective basically does not always give you like the confidence then to speak about it and to ask for what you want or need. So Yeah, it's like the balance. Yeah. <laughs> so as you said, you've lived in like numerous cities. So have you noticed like big differences in cultural between the US, which is supposed to be much more open and Europe, which is much more traditional? 
Yes, there is a big difference, I think. Yeah, I think it's essentially U.S. versus, you know, more Latin countries, although I wouldn't want to speak to any other country than France. I think when I was living in London, I didn't feel this difference in perception as much. Or if I did, it came more from the fact that London is such a multicultural place and there's a lot of money flowing in from the Middle East, for instance, or Russia or other nationalities. And I don't think it's I don't think the relation to money is that different than in France if you look at pure Brits. But that said, there's a huge difference with the U.S. I think people here tend to be very, very commercial and entrepreneurial. You know, speaking of money is not a bad thing. Actually, quite to the contrary, it's very positive because it gives people a quantified sense of what you're talking about. And essentially, if you look at the social construct here, money is really the only way up on the social ladder. So obviously, people aspire to the American dream. I think that's still very much a thing here, despite everything that you can read in the papers. And, you know, the only way to get up the social ladder is through money. So if you become wealthy, if you start a company, you sell it very well, or if you get into certain fields that are more lucrative than others, like finance or tech in the Silicon Valley, that's really how you become someone in this country. And it's the beauty of it is that it's accessible for everyone. Cool. So let's talk about your studies now. So back in 2015, you were living in London and working for Burberry as a marketing manager. So you already had a master's degree to one of the best schools in France, but the idea of doing more studies popped into your mind and you decided you wanted to do an MBA at Harvard. So can you tell us a bit more about this story? Like why Harvard and how did it came to your mind? This is not a new idea, getting into the MBA path and going to Harvard. I think this is a seed that my dad planted very, very early on in my brain. And I went through a bit of a rebel phase as every teenager where, you know, I was telling him, why do you keep pushing and pushing on this idea? It's way too soon. I'm, you know, I'm not even finished with prep school. I'm not even in undergraduate school at, at ISEC yet. You know, this is way too soon. And he kept saying, no, 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 you need to start thinking about it. And so we butted heads quite a bit on that topic. But his experience has been very intertwined with the U.S. He's a corporate lawyer. He focused on international affairs all of his life, especially in the music industry. And he went to the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, to complete his French law degrees. And so he spent a bunch of time in the U.S. and really admired the liberal economy and all of the practices that are so specific to the U.S. market. And so he's always encouraged me to go back. And eventually, you know, when he stopped talking about it, that's when I decided to take on the idea and to apply. So all thanks to him. Okay, cool. So I remember like you work really hard when we were both living in London, like to pass all the required tests. And after a few months, your application was actually a success. So really well done. Because it's such a well-known name, which attracts smart people all over the world, Were you actually confident you would succeed or were you just trying your luck not to have any regrets? What was your mentality around it? No, of course not. I didn't know that I would succeed. I actually thought I had very low chances. Despite the program trying to become more international, I think, and attracting talent from elsewhere because the MBA in itself is a controversial topic at the moment in the U.S. because it's so expensive. You know, I think it's still a very U.S.-focused, U.S.-centric program. And so obviously the bulk of the people who are admitted are very brilliant Americans. And so I obviously knew that, you know, coming from Europe, having a, a non-traditional background, having already gone through business school, you know, it's not like I was coming from engineering school or architecture school or 
something that really justified going through a second business degree. You know, I thought this is a, a moonshot. I don't know if this is actually going to convert. That said, it requires so much work, as you said, that I only put one application together because I figured if I'm going to do this, it only really makes sense to go to the, the best school or the best brand out there as opposed to, you know, sending out 10 applications to random places and then going to the one that would accept me. So I think it was a calculated risk. I know how much work is going to be put into this. I'm going to allocate the time to the best school. And, you know, inshallah, if I get in, then then great. And if I don't, then I'll still have learned a lot in the process. So after like, let's say the euphoria or like the celebration, yeah, I'm going. Basically, then came the question of financing because we all know, and as you said, it like studies in the US are incredibly expensive. So how much did you need for those two years? What were the options that you first envisaged? Yeah. I mean, look, it's not a cheap exercise for sure. And I had thought about the trade-off before applying, obviously, because needing to put all the work in requires to be sure that you would actually attend if you were accepted. You know, to give you a sense of how much it costs, it's about $70,000 per year in tuition. You know, that's <laughs> far more than what you would need for, you know, a year in any type of school in, in France. It's definitely an expensive endeavor. And I think that's why people hesitate so much in terms of trade-off between continuing to work their jobs. But in terms of how I financed it, which I think was your primary question, I always knew I would have to borrow a portion of the total. But luckily enough, you know, at that point in time, it was back in 2016, interest rates were really low. And so I was able to, you know, negotiate loans with my banks in France and then able to use that as needed in the U.S. But I also was very lucky in the sense that I got some scholarships that I had to, you know, apply for, interview for, and that covered substantial portion of the total cost. So it wasn't all debt. It was a sort of calculated risk again on, you know, how much can I get from grants and fellowships? And then how much do I have to borrow? <laughs> In terms of grants, like, or scholarships, because really amazed, like, so much has been funded through that medium. Mm. So, like, how did you find the support? Where did you find the info that you were actually, it was accessible to you and so on and so forth? There are two ways of, of looking at financial aid in the U.S. I'm, I'm not sure if that's the case in any other country in the world, but I would suppose so. They look at need-based and they look at merit-based. And so need-based are sort of the fellowships that will allow someone who is disadvantaged, so doesn't have enough income or earnings or not necessarily income and earnings, but just savings to be able to face the total amount that they have to pay. But then there are also merit-based fellowships, which are more around not so much how much you have in savings, but just have you been displaying of, you know, really great, I don't know, it could be academic or professional actions or, you know, career that would justify that that specific fellowship that must have a specific theme gives you money. So for instance, I, I got a Fulbright fellowship or scholarship, they call it, which is essentially a program that promotes interactions between the U.S. and any other country. So each country has its own Fulbright Fellows. But for me, in my specific case, it was between France and the U.S. So interesting. And yeah, really well done, because it's always better to get financed than having a huge loan to start your career, even though, as you said, like the experience is amazing and you'll definitely have this return back at some point. Exactly. 
I think your question was also, how did you know about these grants? I honestly did a ton of research on the internet. I spoke to a bunch of people. You know, it wasn't an easy process. You sort of had to figure out all of the different places you could go and ask for help. And then you would just have to put the work into, again, applying for those different fellowships and then hope for the best. And then there was a phase of interviews after they had done the first screening based on your written application. And then you would hopefully be selected. So yeah, a lot of internet search and speaking to random people about how they had financed their own studies. 100% worth it. <laughs> so without these six ACs, like, do you consider yourself either like super confident, but it doesn't seem to be the case because <laughs> you still have the imposter syndrome sometimes, or more like courageous and willing to work a lot to achieve, or just like willing to try not to have any regrets? Yeah, I wouldn't describe myself as super confident. I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I think that's more of a masculine trait, to be honest. I think I try to be as smart as I can. So I try to have as much information as possible at hand in order to make an informed decision. But I've also tried to become comfortable with making decisions without complete set of data, because I think that's really what a lot of you know, life decisions are about. And I think a lot of work, honestly. I mean, my both my parents have amazing work ethic. I think they're just really intellectual, curious people. And that's sort of translated to me. Although I do like Farniente, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> you always need like the best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> I think just work ethic and determination after having set an intelligent goal and an intelligent way to get there is sort of my modus operandi. So 2021 is a big, big year for you on your personal life. So you're having a baby and you're getting married. So <laughs> well done. So big change like plan for July, if I remember, or like end of June, early July. So more than any countries, financially planning for baby's arrival is vital, especially as the US is the only OECD country without a national statutory paid maternity, paternity, or parental leave, which sounds crazy, but that's the case. I've actually done a bit of research, and there's like eight states that have passed their own paid family leave laws. So are you in one of the lucky ones to get a maternity leave that is paid or not? And basically, how have you planned? So do you know how much you'll earn, how long you'll be off work? Will your husband stop as well? And how do you plan to share the workload? I think the U.S. is a very wide country and laws, like you said, differ from state to state. A lot of employers just do their own thing in order to attract talent. But I think in the state of New York, you have the right to take time off, obviously, under, under paid family leave. But essentially, that only gives you the right to keep your job for up to 12 weeks which if you think about it is actually really scary because you would essentially be paid 67% of your average weekly wage for only a period of 12 weeks, which is three months, and you would be able to keep your job. To give you an idea, I think my husband is going to only take two weeks because there's just no precedent of any other father that has been able to take more than two weeks. And he still considers himself at a relatively junior level. You know, he's, he's definitely not a partner yet. <laughs> and so he doesn't feel comfortable essentially asking for more than what he's seen other people take, which is obviously the issue, right? No one will dare do that until the official policy actually is established. So yeah, as for me, I think, you know, I'm going to give birth early July. So end of June, 
And then I was hoping to sort of take two months off and then start over in September. But as I speak to a lot of people, a lot of newly minted mothers, it sounds like that's probably too rushed because that would only give me two months off. So I think I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm reassessing the situation and figuring out if if I should take more or not. Again, I think the financial aspect, we're lucky enough to not have to worry too much about, you know, one month's difference in wages. So I think we're lucky in that sense. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But I, I also appreciate it. You know, it's not given to everyone. Do you think it's actually like a, a true statement or a cliche that it's super expensive in terms of nursery, in terms of education in the US? True statement, I'm afraid. <laughs> actually, I think a year of kindergarten is probably similar in pricing to a year in elementary school. So, you know, that adds up. I think that the conclusion I have from that is that it really doesn't make much of a difference whether you put your kid in kindergarten versus having a nanny. That's sort of where I've come down at the moment, although I haven't really decided exactly what we're going to do for childcare. But I think, you know, it's definitely much more expensive. And do you think like the salaries, because we often say as well, like salaries in the US are way higher. Do you think basically taking into account all these extra fees or that you don't necessarily pay in other countries, are you still like well enough? You know, salaries might be twice as high as in Europe. And again, this is a gross average. But, you know, other things, your cost of living is much higher than twice as high. So, you know, rents are probably three times as high for the same amount of space. Groceries are maybe two and a half times. Restaurants and bars are probably three times as high. Uh, culture is, you know, I'm not sure if everyone is interested in culture, but I definitely am. And culture is practically free in France. It's not at all in the US. And culture, I use that as a loose term. It could be museums, but it can also be anything entertainment oriented, like cinemas, you know, the theater, opera, whatever it is, is, is very, very expensive. So I would argue that it's actually more expensive to live in New York than in Paris, despite the inflation in salaries. And that's without a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I imagine. <laughs> so I've left actually a few questions for the end. And one of them is linked to what you were discussing before. So how do you like living in the US? And do you see yourself living there in the long term with your newly created family? I would see myself living in New York. I'm not too sure about the rest of the US. I think I love the East Coast because it's so close to, I mean, it's so close. It's the closest to Europe. <laughs> and New York is also almost European in a lot of ways. There are a lot of, you know, European immigrants. And that's very cool because it connects a lot of people around the same sort of things. I also wouldn't want to live in any other city because I love being able to walk around. I was raised in the center of Paris And I, you know, I love not having to take a car to go everywhere, which is essentially your life anywhere else than in a city center. And actually is also the case in a lot of city centers in the U.S., except probably for New York. So uh, New York's very fun, COVID aside. And even, yeah, with a baby. Yeah, we have had conversations about moving to the suburbs. I find the concept really scary. So I'm not sure we're going to be doing that. I think we will try to make it work to stay in the center of New York. And, you know, we're not also discarding the option of going back to Europe at some point. So we have to make that work with our careers. That's good. Yeah. And especially like your husband's learning French. So 
last one, you seem to be pretty good at raising money for yourself. So with like all what you've done at Harvard, like through the scholarships and so on. So have you had any experiences of raising funds for a charity or any other cause? So I, when I was in school, I helped raise about $15,000 for the Boston Food Bank. So that was back in grad school. And we helped the food bank essentially pay for tons of meals for underprivileged people who were living in the Boston area. And we did that by essentially hosting an event. It was a fashion show. And we got a lot of sort of up and coming retailers who weren't very well known yet to lend us some uh, apparel and accessories. And they, they did that sort of pro bono just so that a lot of people could see the clothes and, you know, spread word of mouth about the brands. And then we had students that we selected from HBS model those clothes down on the runway. And so we made a massive event out of it. We had makeup artists, hairdressers and all of that. And, um, and all of the proceeds of the tickets is essentially what we handed over to the food bank. So that was one thing, very fun experience. And also obviously very excited to be able to do that for the community. And then the other thing that I did is more professional. I worked for this holding company that manages quick service restaurant brands, one of them being Burger King. And so I worked with the franchisees managing the restaurants to encourage them to essentially put money aside from their own earnings uh, to go back to a foundation that we have that's called the McLemore Foundation that focuses on education of underprivileged children. So we raised about $860,000 in that effort. So it wasn't my money, but it was definitely a lot of discussions and influencing the franchisees to understand what we were doing at the foundation and you know take some portion of their own money to give back to that cause. So that was very exciting as well. Yeah, can you imagine and impressive the amounts that you've raised so wow. <laughs> yeah, it was it was over a year. It's not it's not a one-time shot. <laughs> <laughs> still, still very, very bravo. As a just a last thought on that, I think the US is so much more focused on um charitable work. You know, I've never been exposed to opportunities like that in France. Maybe it's because I was younger and in college and you know, we didn't focus on that as much. But I think the US is because the system is very inequitable, you know, healthcare, you only have access to healthcare because you're working and you have a job that will give you access to healthcare. But if you're out of a job, you don't have access to healthcare. I think a lot of people try to give back to the community as much as possible. So it's an important, I think, sort of penchant that I've developed here since I've been in the US. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's kind of the same in London. I think like compared to France, where people think the state's going to help in like more London or New York or like Anglo-Saxon country, I would say, yeah, people much more rely on others and community to help each other. Yeah, the private sector really steps in. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tessa, for sharing your experience. It was so inspiring to see you have so much ambition, that you're really pushing yourself and you're actually achieving a lot of things. <laughs> so that's great to hear your stories. And I'm sure like, yeah, a lot of people would have been inspired by your talk. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Marika. I can't wait to hear the other podcasts and everyone else's experiences. Uh, sweet. <laughs> Take care. Speak to you soon. So that's the end of this episode. I hope you are as enthusiastic as I am. You can find the notes and the key takeaways on my website at smarikafino.com. And if you want to go further in mastering this beautiful adventure of owning your finances, please contact me. I offer workshops and coaching to guide you through. 
finally, if you like this podcast, please subscribe and spread the word.